Yes. Okay, we're good to go. So on December 8th, 1667, Feast of the, of the Immaculate Conception at the Duomo of Florence, the famous anatomist Nicolaus Steno knelt twice before the papal nuncio, the representative of the Pope in Florence. Each time the nuncio first conferred on Steno the sacrament of confirmation and then gave him Holy Communion for the first time in his life. Nicolaus Steno had been raised a devout Lutheran in Copenhagen, Denmark. But from this moment on, a month before he turned 30 years old, he entered full communion with the Catholic Church. In the words of the same nuncio, in a letter written a week before to Rome, Steno had recently, quote, embraced Christ and the Catholic faith and wanted to receive these sacraments directly from him due to, quote, his pious idea of the doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope. This choice was not an accident. Then as now, papal infallibility is the doctrine that better distinguishes Catholics from every other Christian. By highlighting this particular doctrine, Steno was affirming his new commitment to Catholicism. But why did the prominent scholar like Nicolaus Steno decide to join the Catholic Church, especially a few decades after the Inquisition condemned Galileo for his scientific ideas? This question is especially relevant considering that in the second half of the 17th century, in the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War, Europe was finally at peace with its religious fragmentation. That is, in theory, Steno did not need to change his Christian denomination in order to develop his research in Italy. As he himself wrote in a book years later, quote, I lived in places where the Inquisition exists, in Rome and Florence, as well as in Pisa and Livorno. And I saw everywhere that the non-Catholics enjoyed the greatest freedom of life if they did not do anything objectionable. Yes, he continues, even at the papal courts, I heard people freely dispute with prelates against the faith, the ecclesiastical hierarchy, or the monarchical regime, end of quote. In this talk, I want to take a closer look at the, at the conversion of Nicolaus Steno and use it to address broader themes about science and religion. Historians already know well that the idea of incompatibility between science and religion is false. This The Mystic Institute series, especially the opening talk, is a wonderful resource to understand that this incompatibility does not stand historical scrutiny. But this conflict thesis between faith and science, as it came to be known, is still very popular in common opinion and in some subtle ways in the history of science as well. Nicolaus Steno's conversion is a good example of this. Some historians have argued how Steno's conversion to Catholicism depicts a strong resonance between science and faith, especially the Catholic faith. But others have claimed exactly the opposite. They say that Steno's subsequent ordination to the priesthood and episcopacy led him to stop doing science, therefore showing that science and religion sometimes are incompatible. In this talk, I want to avoid this kind of discussion, which reveals more of our present time than of Steno. Instead, I want to look at what actually happened with Steno's conversion and understand how exactly science and religion interacted in Steno's life, if at all. To do this, I will remain very close to what Steno and those that knew him actually wrote, especially in the months before and after his conversion. I will show that Steno converted in the specific year of 1667, 
precisely the peak of his scientific career for reasons related to his research at the time. Until the beginning of his conversion, Steno's entire life revolved around his scientific research. He acknowledged this himself, saying that, quote, the study of natural things in which I was wholly immersed did not yet allow me a serious study of religion. Things only started to change, he said, when, quote, divine mercy unexpectedly dragged me from these other studies to the study of salvation. But rather than seeing his scientific studies as an obstacle, as Steno did, I argue that precisely because his life was so centered on science, his conversion occurred at that specific time. Unfortunately, contrary to what I and other historians would like, most accounts of Steno's conversion date from several years after it happened, including after Steno died. This means that they are strongly influenced by what happened after Steno's conversion, such as the publication of a very successful book in geology in 1669, Steno's elevation to the highest ranks of the church's hierarchy when he was ordained the bishop in 1677, and most importantly, his publicly devout, poor and charitable life, which the Catholic Church officially recognized when Pope John Paul II beatified Steno in 1988. All these events make Steno's conversion look more significant later on than when it happened. For this reason, I will, re I will rely most especially on sources that are close to the time of his conversion and on texts written by Steno himself. This said, let's now take a closer look at the steps that Steno took until the year 1667. Nicolaus Steno was born in 1638 in Copenhagen, Denmark. After studying for a few years at the University of Copenhagen, Steno started a long journey through Europe to visit the most important places of 17th century science, a typical practice among young scholars from Denmark. After spending four years in the Low Countries, Steno received a medical degree from the University of Leiden, one of the most innovative universities at the time. He then traveled to Paris, where he rapidly entered the circle of scholars that founded the Académie des Sciences de France. This was one of the very first modern scientific academies, similar to the also recent Royal Society of London. On his way to Italy, Steno met a few English fellows of the Royal Society in Montpellier, a Protestant enclave in the south of France. In short, as Steno advanced his research and broadened his horizons, he also became known in the most important intellectual networks of Europe, known as the Republic of Letters. But of all the places he visited, Florence was the place that Steno fell in love with. And I can safely say that if you ever live in Florence like I do, you will most likely feel the same way. Steno arrived in Florence for the first time in April 1666. Just like in Leiden and Paris, he rapidly connected with the intellectuals there. At the time, Grand Duke Ferdinand II de' Medici, the last patron of Galileo Galilei, ruled over Tuscany and hosted a group of remarkable scholars at his court. Many of these scholars studied directly with Galileo or with some of his most important disciples like Evangelista Torricelli, who developed some of the first experiments on the vacuum. They were all members of the Accademia del Cimento, an institution founded by the Grand Duke's brother, Prince Leopoldo de' Medici, and which served as inspiration for the other academies that I just mentioned in France and England. 
In short, the Medici court was one of the main hubs for scientific research at that time, just like MIT or Caltech today. When Steno arrived, the Medici scholars had already heard of him through his published works and were happy to meet him in person. By this time, Steno had already published two important works about early modern anatomy. In his first book, Steno announced the discovery of a new duct that brought saliva from the parotid gland to the mouth. In his second book, published two years before he arrived in Florence, Steno presented an early version of his theory of muscle contraction, which he would later expand as soon as he settled in Florence. In these books, Steno often used mechanics and mathematics to explain physiological phenomena, which I think was one of his most important contributions to early modern science. Using mathematics to describe natural phenomena was a key element of the so-called scientific revolution, and it was strongly associated with Galileo and the interests of the Medici court. Indeed, this common interest in mathematics was the main reason why Steno settled in Florence under Medici patronage in the summer of 1666. Interestingly, he was still a Protestant at the time. Despite the heat of the Florentine summer, Steno was able to conclude a new book shortly after arriving in Florence. Under the guidance of Vincenzo Viviane, the Grand Duke's chief mathematician and Galileo's last disciple, Steno developed a sophisticated geometrical, mo geometrical model to explain muscle contraction. The book was ready for print in October of that year. Yet the book did not see the light of day immediately and was only printed in early May of the following year, more than six months later. Strikingly, it was during this interregnum of the book's publication that Steno started studying fossils and Catholicism as seriously as he used to study anatomy. To fully understand how Steno developed these new interests, it is important to know what occupied his thoughts at the time. When he arrived in Florence, Steno was so deeply committed to anatomy that he described the need for good research as a matter of life and death. In the preface to his new book, probably written in the winter after his arrival, I mean the preface, the book was already written by then, Steno argued that if anatomists, quote, did not hand on to posterity anything except things that were certain, then our knowledge would be less wide, but also less dangerous. That is, Steno was saying that unless anatomy was rigorous and accurate, medicine could offer little to mankind and could even hurt it. And in fact, as you may know, early modern medical practices were so bizarre that the recent book about it is titled Bad Medicine, Doctors Doing Harm Since Hippocrates. For this reason, Steno considered that purging anatomy from knowledge that was not certain was a positive contribution to science. For instance, a year before in Paris, Steno made a public dissection of the brain whose contents were later published as a book. Steno explicitly wrote that the main purpose of his dissection was to show, quote, that the substance of the brain is still poorly known. Unlike, for instance, what Descartes and other physiologists at the time claimed. In his new book on the muscles from Florence, he confessed to being happy to, quote, at least distinguish what is certain in anatomy from what is uncertain. And no one should ignore how much this alone should be valued. Steno approached his goal of increasing certainty in anatomy by doing as many observations as possible 
in as many animals as possible. For instance, for his early work on the glands, Steno dissected and compared glands in a lamb, a cow, a sheep, many dogs and rabbits, and human cadavers. This method was known as comparative anatomy. Before arriving in Florence, Steno's most important result in comparative anatomy was concluding that the heart was just a muscle. Steno wrote that, quote, in muscles, like in all the substance of the heart, nothing else occurs other than arteries, veins, nerves, fibers, membranes. This claim, which was also made by a few others at the time, challenged the traditional understanding of the heart as a unique source of energy for the entire body. But for Steno, equivalence of substance was enough to convince him that the heart was just a muscle. Steno's comparative anatomy was not restricted to glands or the heart. A few months after arriving in Tuscany, Steno used this comparative method to describe for the first time the ovaries of women. Until then, many anatomists still thought that ovaries, then called female testicles, contributed little to animal reproduction. They existed only as mere vestiges in women, just like nipples in men. Instead, Steno concluded that, quote, the testicles of females are analogous to an ovary, like in fishes and other animals. For Steno, this similarity between the ovaries of mammalians and fishes was enough to, quote, to show the, to show the analogy of the genital parts and to remove this error by which it is believed that the genitals of women are analogous to the genitals of men. This was, by the way, the beginning of new research um, on the reproductive system that was, Steno was kind of opening it up and then his Dutch friends did it in Leiden or continued it. Steno performed these observations on ovaries in the winter in Tuscany during that long wait before the book's publication, his book on mathematics. This is to say that in these months, Steno was continuously applying his comparative method in anatomy in ovaries, glands, and muscles. Not surprisingly, he was about to apply to fossils. When Steno completed his book on muscles, you know, around October of 66, news arrived in Florence of an extraordinary, really big, large white shark caught in Livorno, the port city of Tuscany. Having heard this, Grand Duke Ferdinand II asked for the shark's head to be shipped up the river Arno to Florence and to have Nicolaus Steno, the new anatomist at court, dissect it. Steno accepted the invitation and used the shark to explore those very questions about anatomy that he was already researching. It was because of this dissection that Steno's work on muscles was put on pause because he decided to add to the book an anatomical description of the shark, which would take longer to write. This shark's dissection became known for igniting Nicolaus Steno's geological research, which made him known today as the founder of modern geology. In short, the story goes, Steno realized during the dissection that shark's teeth were equal to a kind of fossils often found far from the sea. In time, this led him to argue that the earth has a history and that this history can be known through a series of rules still taught today as Steno's principles of stratigraphy. However, the sources written immediately after this dissection do not support this story. Eyewitnesses to the dissection make no reference at all to fossils or the earth, and Steno's writing on the subject only appears for the first time months later. Instead, the story was far more complex and speaks to Steno's deep commitment to comparative anatomy 
which in turn led to his new interest in fossils and to the somewhat surprising religious conversion. What happened then? After dissecting the head of the shark in October, Steno read an almost 100-year-old manuscript written by Michele Mercati, who was the papal physician in the Renaissance in the late 16th century. Mercati claimed that although strikingly similar, fossils and teeth of sharks were not the same things. And this is, these are, by the way, images from Mercati's book that Steno later used in his book. Interestingly, Mercati, like Steno, also wanted to be, quote, as clear as possible, and not only to teach, but also to remove false and supposed things from natural history. Yet, Mercati's conclusion directly contradicted Steno's radical use of comparisons in anatomy. Whereas Steno claimed that two distinct but similar organs were of the same substance, like muscles and hearts, Mercati claimed the exact opposite with regard to fossils and teeth of sharks. How could Mercati share the same scientific goal as Steno and yet conclude that sharks' teeth and fossils were different despite their obvious similarities? Faced with this stark methodological difference, Steno had to respond. Therefore, he added to his account of the shark's head what he called a digression on the origin of fossils, where he wrote an early version of his principle of superposition of the strata. Steno, of course, did not start from a blank slate. Due to his training in medicine and natural history, he studied fossils, which were often considered to have medicinal properties. Steno was also familiar with the various opinions about the origin of fossils. But reading Mercati's claims precisely when he was so engaged with comparing organs and erasing uncertainty in anatomy compelled him to write about fossils himself. From then on, Steno split his time between opening up bodies and observing rocks and mountains. Two years later, in 1669, his main ideas were published in a whole book dedicated to the earth called On a Solid, naturally contained within a solid. In this book, he admitted that his goal was to bring certainty to a discipline that had, quote, become very uncertain in most recent times. But right after Steno shifted his research to the study of fossils, he was also confronted with a similar problem in religion. The origins of this new challenge have roots in a new friendship that Steno made among the Tuscan scholars. Alongside his intense research, Steno deepened his ties to the Medici courts and its scientists. Therefore, when the court traveled to Pisa and Livorno in the winter, Steno was invited to accompany them. In these places, he stayed lodged with Francesco Redi, the chief physician of the Medici court. This was a logical choice because Steno was also a physician. Moreover, the two scholars rapidly noticed that they shared similar opinions in almost everything related to anatomy. And thus a, a fruitful friendship began. As C.S. Lewis famously put it in The Four Loves, a friendship begins when two people look at each other and ask the question, what, you too? In that winter, Reddy was writing what would become his most famous work in biology, where he showed that worms were not spontaneously generated within rotten meat, an idea held true by most scientists at the time, but which thankfully no one takes seriously anymore. In his book, published a year later in Florence, Reddy mentioned his collaboration with Steno, in particular their dissections of various animals in Tuscany. 
Steno and Reddy's joint dissections in scientific observations sometimes occurred in the most unusual situations. For instance, once they were hunting with the courts and finished the day dissecting a boar that they had just captured in the Tuscan woods. At another time, they went fishing in the Mediterranean Sea while examining the anatomical details of each fish they captured, as Reddy's notes from those days reveal. In short, Reddy and Steno swiftly shifted from having fun to making dissections because making dissections was perhaps the most entertaining thing for them. Anatomy was so central to their social life that they were always talking about it, including when they were, quote, by the fire after eating dinner, to use Reddy's own words in a letter. But if anatomy was the main fuel of their friendship, it was not the only theme they talked about. Reddy accompanied Steno's emerging interest in fossils closely and lent him a relevant manuscript to read. This shows that the various intellectuals and social dimensions of Steno's life were united around his scientific research, which informed his friendships and travels. Now, it was around this time spent with Reddy, specifically at the end of March 1667, that the first reference to Steno's possible conversion appeared in the sources. In a letter to a priest friend, Reddy wrote that, quote, he hoped with certainty that Mr. Nicolaus Steno would convert to the Catholic religion, abandoning Lutheranism. I have him so close that I can tell you this with confidence. May God be thanked for this, end of quote. That is, although their opinions differed in this matter, given Steno's Protestant background and Reddy's Catholicism, Reddy and Steno clearly talked about religion. But Steno did not feel as close to Catholicism as Reddy thought, and much study was still lacking. In fact, later accounts of Steno's conversion mentioned that he only started considering it more seriously a few weeks after Reddy made this comment. Indeed, after spending Easter with the Medici court in Livorno, Steno's time together with the court and with Reddy came to a pause. After Easter, the court usually returned to Florence, but Steno decided not to follow them. His interest in meeting other scholars in Italy, as well as his new research interest on fossils, led him to visit the Tuscan cities of Lucca and Pistoia. Yet, even at a distance, he relied on the friendship with Reddy, who, the day after Easter, wrote to two of his friends in Lucca. One of them was Francesco Maria Fiorentini, one of Lucca's main physicians. Reddy asked whether Fiorentini could receive Steno and perhaps chat with him and show him some of his new observations, which he did. In his reply, written only a few days later, Fiorentini mentioned meeting Steno and praised him as, quote, a most virtuous and gentle person. Indeed, this meeting was crucial for Steno's work on fossils. Fiorentini showed Steno shells found in dryland that looked like, quote, vertebrae of fish, which confirmed Steno's ideas about the origin of fossils. As soon as Steno returned to Florence a few days later, he was still able to add this information to his book on mussels, although only to the index because the rest was already printed. So you have an odd index in Steno's book with some paragraphs in the end. But this trip to Luca affected Steno in other ways. Reddy also wrote a letter to Lavinia Arnolfini, a devout noblewoman from Luca who was the wife of Luca's ambassador to Florence. In this letter, Reddy asked whether she and the ambassador could receive Steno in their palace and perhaps, quote, erase there that native curiosity that made Steno a pilgrim of the world, 
by which he probably meant Steno's desire to keep on traveling. Reddy wrote that Steno was an incredible person while subtly referring to his Lutheranism. As he put it, quote, if Steno did not have impressed in his soul the dogmas of Luther, she would judge him as a man of no ordinary perfection. Now, it is not clear whether Reddy plans to use Steno's meeting with Lavinia to bring him closer to Catholicism. Most likely, Reddy's intention was to find suitable hosts for Steno in Lucca. Indeed, the Arnolfini family had lived in Paris for several years and probably overlapped with Steno there, thus probably sharing some acquaintances in common. Given Steno's mastery of the French language and his courtly manners, which then is now were standard in Western diplomacy, there would be a strong resonance between Steno and the Arnolfini family. More importantly, the gentleness and modesty of Steno, widely praised throughout the Republic of Letters, including in Florence, made Steno attractive to this family, given Lady Arnolfini's also publicly devout life at court. Her biographer said that various women in Florence wrote to her, quote, to direct their souls, and that even the Grand Duke spoke with pleasure of her virtues and asked for her prayers. Yet, perhaps because of Reddy's mention of Steno's Lutheranism, Lavinia guided the conversation with Steno to the discussion of what Steno described as religious matters. It is not exactly clear what they talked about, but at some point, Lavinia made an intense and emotional pledge for Steno to embrace the Catholic faith. Steno mentioned his encounter with Lavinia in various letters after his conversion, which shows the importance of this conversation to him. From one of these letters written five to 10 years later, Steno wrote Lavinia's exact words as he remembered them. She cried out to him, quote, oh, if my blood were enough to demonstrate to you the necessity of the Catholic faith, I would give my life in this very moment for your salvation. Somehow, Lavinia's pledge triggered something in Steno's heart, perhaps because she attributed to religion a similar life or death argument that Steno used in favor of anatomical studies. Regardless, quote, moved by this unexpected argument of Christian charity, Steno continued, I answered that I had never before seen such a love of God and of neighbor in anyone. And indeed, I acknowledged that until now, I labored with greater attention to other studies rather than to my own salvation and promised from that moment on a serious study of religion. Yet, unless this conversation took place two months later in Florence, which is possible, Steno did not turn his attention to religion right away. Indeed, Steno returned to Florence to finally complete the publication of the book. But a few weeks later, by late May, Steno was again on the move. Around that time, the mathematician Viviani announced Steno's departure to a friend in Rome. Viviani was probably disappointed because he had worked hard to find a room for Steno in Florence. Indeed, in this letter to Rome, Viviani placed his friendship with Steno in slight opposition to what he called Steno's, quote, doctrine, too novel for the entire world of scholars. Probably he meant the theory on the origin of fossils. Long story short, Steno was on the move in order to make new observations about rocks, mountains, and strata. Indeed, his time in Rome was also short because by June 9, he was back in Livorno, the port city of Tuscany. And a few days later, he wrote to Florence with news of a few shells that he had collected in his travels. Yet again, in the midst of this research trip, Steno found himself grappling with what he called, quote, the uncertainty 
of my soul. Thursday, June 9th was also the annual solemnity of Corpus Domini, which Catholic churches around the world celebrate with the procession of the Eucharistic host, which Catholics believe to be the actual body of Christ. In a letter responding to Lavinia Arnolfini's request for the reasons for his conversion, Steno referred to this specific procession in Livorno. He said that, quote, when I saw that host carried in procession with such pomp throughout the city, I felt waking up in my mind this argument. Either that host is a simple piece of bread and silly are those who give so much honor to it, or here is the true body of Christ, and what, why don't I honor it too? It thus seems that in these months, Steno's intellectual concerns broadened from the study of human and animal bodies to what he concluded to be the body of Christ. Back in Florence for the summer, Steno took almost, quote, all the morning hours to study theology. With the same scholarly urge that led him to read everything about the anatomy of an organ, Steno devoted himself to, quote, seriously reading books borrowed from friends, and not only Catholic books, but also others like the Centuriatoris Magdeburgenses, the most famous Lutheran history of the church at the time. Lavinia also introduced Steno to her confessor, the Jesuit Emilio Savignani, who later also became Steno's confessor. Yet, Steno's conversations with Savignani were not what he was looking for. As he wrote to Lavinia a few years later, quote, not satisfied with talking about this matter with learned people, I wanted to apply all diligence in learning about the original texts of sacred scripture and the most ancient authors. And I wanted to do this in various ways, particularly in a famous library with the oldest Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. And Steno here probably meant the Medici Laurentiana library designed by Michelangelo. In short, he continued, Steno did not want to trust the Latin versions without further examination but rather to compare them with the original texts of the two languages, since due to my previous studies in anatomy, I already knew them." End of quote. That is, the knowledge of ancient languages, which in the early modern period was part of the training of many scientists, also contributed to Steno's religious studies and conversion. But what exactly were the problems or arguments that Steno wanted to solve with these readings? The answer to this question lies in the questions that Steno was tackling in science at the time. When Steno talked with Lavinia and saw the Eucharistic procession in the spring of 67, he was in the process of understanding how strong his comparative method was outside of anatomy. His subsequent writings on geology show that he became increasingly confident in using the same method to eliminate uncertainty in earth history. Therefore, when Lavinia asserted that Catholicism was necessary for salvation, he understood that not only this was an important question, but also that the way to solve it was comparative. As he wrote, quote, the arguments that urged me most at the time were those related to the question of which among the various churches was the true church of Christ. Therefore, let us now finally analyze Steno's reasoning. To follow Steno's arguments, I am relying on a letter that Steno wrote five to 10 years later to a Calvinist pastor in Amsterdam. In this letter on his own conversion, Steno's reasoning was more refined and clearer than it probably was at the time he converted. The argument was also presented for the explicit purpose of, of convincing readers of the truth of the Catholic Church. 
But since this is not the only argument that Steno used as a Catholic, and since it resonates with Steno's comparative method in science, and since he says that himself, this was most likely the argument that guided him when he was at the Laurentiana reading his old books. Steno started by stating that it was obvious and thus commonly accepted across various confessions, quote, that the original Roman church was the true church of Christ. Moreover, he continued, all the members of this church, at least until the times of Luther, believed that they would be saved in that same original faith. It was only when Luther and other reformers came that it was claimed that this was not true, Steno wrote. The problem was that, as Steno put it, since, quote, the spirit of truth cannot be the author of opposed churches, which reformed church was a true one? Steno thus undertook a comparative search for what he called the marks of the true church among the various reformed churches. In the end, he found out that, quote, all reformers boasted purity of doctrine, all appealed to sacred scriptures, and all said that their church is apostolic, but none of them has anything which proves itself to be truer than the others. As a result, he continues, one should go back to that church to which our ancestors owe their conversion and from which all other churches departed, which alone proves itself to be apostolic and shines forth with other characters demonstrating the supernatural presence of God. But was this original church, the Catholic Church? In yet another parallel with his scientific research, Steno acknowledged that this reasoning did not allow him to claim with certainty that the Catholic Church was the true church. Instead, he admitted, his argument only worked, quote, by reason of the falsity of the others. That is, Steno was only certain that the reformed churches were not the true church. Interestingly, this kind of reasoning resonated with some of his scientific conclusions, such as when he showed that certain popular claims about the brain were not certain. On the other hand, the arguments for the Catholic truth, he wrote, are only probable. Steno's alleged, alleged lack of certainty about Catholicism also resonates with his claims about the history of the earth. In geology, Steno admitted that he did not know for certain which mechanism led to the formation of the strata because he did not have direct access to the Earth's past. Instead, he presented various possible mechanisms for sedimentation and said that, quote, if the strata of our Earth are not accumulated in all these ways, it is certain that they could have accumulated in all these ways, or at least in some of these ways. Yet, while Steno considered this probabilistic reasoning a success in geology, this was not the case in religion. In the end, this was not enough for Steno to make the leap into the Catholic Church. What then made him decide to convert? As he explained, despite or because of his studies, his mind, quote, was distracted by so great and so many varied worries that as he's almost out of control, it did not find an end to its unhappiness until he says on the feast of all souls around evening, all at once, so many arguments and circumstances came together for me, end of quote. On that day, November 2nd, 1667, a day which Steno later compared to his birthday, he went to the Arnolfini Palace in Florence. According to Mrs. Arnolfini's biography, the only source about the exact topic of their conversation, the devout lady told Steno that her main purpose was to make him Catholic. 
But since she did not want to waste her time uselessly, she advised him, quote, not to come back here again if you do not decide to become Catholic. It was on that very evening, after a brief conversation with the Jesuit Savignani, that Steno finally decided to embrace the Catholic faith. As he described in the letter on his own conversion, it was, quote, the totally accepted divine certitude of divine grace that gave him the certainty that he lacked. That is, for Steno, the piece that was missing was the grace of God. In short, just like scientific research shaped Steno's social life, so too his religious studies started to do the same thing. Now, news of Steno's conversion spread rapidly, especially among his scientific peers, such as Francesco Redi, with whom Steno had dissected three deer five days before converting. By the end of the month, Orazio Ruccellai, an atomistic philosopher at the Medici court, wrote to a cardinal friend that, quote, Mr. Nicolaus Steno from Denmark, who presented you the book on muscles, with much admiration of his virtue and intelligence, felt himself led by an invisible hand to the holy resolution of becoming Catholic. And Vincenzo Viviani, the Grand Duke's mathematician, wrote that Steno, quote, to whom nothing else was missing to be adorable, resurrected precisely on the day of the dead, that is, on the Feast of All Souls, by declaring himself Catholic. Viviani also mentioned that after the Mass, where Steno received his first Catholic sacraments, all his friends, including the Grand Duke and Prince Leopoldo, were filled with, quote, an uncommon joy. In short, the scientific circles of the Medici courts and beyond were thrilled with Steno's conversion. Yet, Steno's conversion was not the only thing that these accounts referred to. Instead, they also mentioned how virtuous Steno seemed to be, and his scholarly friends were not the only ones to notice it. Less than a month after Steno converted, the nuncio of Florence reported to Rome that, quote, Steno's conversion occurred with such edification that it deserves a separate account where one could see the loving artifice of the Holy Spirit in guiding to the truth he who searched for it with so much effort and with good morals. A year later in Rome, Michelangelo Ricci, a mathematician and churchman who Steno met twice as a Protestant in Rome, was thrilled to meet Steno as a Catholic for the first time. He wrote to Prince Leopoldo about how impressed he was with Steno's post modesty and sincerity and his intellect so clear and rich in sciences. In short, Steno's virtuous way of life seems to increasingly reflect his religious pursuits, just like his travels and friendships reflected his anatomical and geological interests. As he put it in a later letter to Viviani, knowledge of eternal realities, quote, would be enough to break all these chains that the world puts around us and which keep us from loving God. But he prayed, quote, may God give us his holy love. In conclusion, when Steno finally returned home to Denmark five years after his conversion, the nuncio of Florence wrote again to Rome. He said that since his conversion, Steno, quote, made such progress that he may be counted among the perfect. His goodness and virtues flourish in such a way that I compare him to the holiest people. Interestingly, Stena was still a layman at the time, making dissections and observations of rocks regularly, alongside some involvement in religious polemics. Steno's move to Denmark at this time was precisely to become the king's royal anatomist, a scientific position. 
In short, until his priestly ordination, Steno's life did not change much. The intellectual concerns that burned inside him, anatomical, geological, or religious, continued to shape his actions because there was unity in his life. Before arriving in Italy, Steno's intellectual concerns were limited to anatomy. But by the time he left, they encompassed what we today call geology and theology. With time, his religious interests took the better part and his commitment to the Catholic faith led him to give his life for the service of souls and the church. But Steno's unity of life is at the root of his conversion to Catholicism. Indeed, as I showed in this talk, it was because Steno took his research in anatomy so personally that he decided to write on fossils and months later to start studying religion. In the same vein, Steno successfully transferred his comparative methods across different areas of inquiry. That is, just like he argued that the heart was a muscle and that fossils were teeth of sharks, so he argued that the Catholic Church was the true Church of Christ, with different epistemic levels, of course. Finally, it was through his scientific collaboration with Reddy that Steno met Lavinia Arnolfini, who in turn led him to a serious study of religion. In a nutshell, from the highly productive year of 1667 until his ordination in 1675, it was with science that Steno stepped into what he described as, quote, the true tranquility of the soul in the bosom of the true church, end of quote. Thank you very much, and I am looking forward to your questions.